Jeremiah 26. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophet, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house shall be like Shiloh and this city will, shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people saying, the Lord has sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now therefore mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in the truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve the sentence of death for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the, and certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded, wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favour of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? but we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemahiah, from kiriath Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and he fled and he escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt, and they brought him to King Jehoiakim, 
who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahiakam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. Thank you, Dave. Well, good morning uh, and welcome. My name's Sam. If uh, I haven't met you before, I've actually been away for about eight weeks on long service leave, so uh, there is a good chance that you've come and been part of our church for a little while and I haven't met you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Hunter Bible Church and uh, one of my jobs is to open the scriptures with you each day, uh, each Sunday, and, uh, and I share that with Greg Lee and Dave Moore and Richard Swepman and a bunch of others who do that. But each week what we do here at Hunter Bible Church, we open the scriptures, we read the Word of God. We do that on Sundays. We also do that at things like youth. So youth, yesterday you had your big day out. It looked like a pretty good time. I went along to the big day out to pick up my daughter last night and uh, there was a, they'd been doing slip and slide down the hill. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I went down the hill to try and find my daughter and I slipped and slid (laughs) and bang, I was covered in mud, absolutely covered in mud. But that's what we do, we open the scriptures and that means, uh, yeah, sometimes we tackle hard passages. Now, a question you might want to ask is, well, how bad can a sermon be? Uh, What is the worst response to a sermon that you can have. When I first started dating my wife, I had to preach one time and, and she was part of the congregation and she sat there just kind of looking up into the sky for the entire thing. She told me afterwards that was her thinking face, which I think I believed, and I said, well, that's probably not the most helpful thinking face for uh, preachers. When I was at college, I preached on a college mission and one of my best mates at college In fact, my best mate at college, he sat me down afterwards and he spent a great deal of time encouraging me not to go into a ministry where I had to preach regularly. (laughs) People have fallen asleep in my talks, people scroll through Facebook in my talks, people have come up to me after my talk and said, that was a great sermon and and told me that the point they got was completely different to the point of the whole sermon. But to this day... I've never had a whole congregation ready to kill me. Nobody has ever decided he must die, which I'm actually quite thankful for. Uh, But we have to ask the question, what was so offensive to the people there that day? Why were they so angered by the words of Jeremiah the prophet? Well, uh, we saw a little video uh, last week where Jeremiah is preaching in Jerusalem, right? And and it's about 2,600 years ago. So last week in chapter 25, during the reign of Jehoiakim, we saw that he had this message for the people of God. And, And that was there was going to be punishment for ongoing sin and rebellion. And the punishment was that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon He would be God's instrument of judgment. This is what we saw last week. We saw that people would be taken into captivity by the king of of Babylon for 70 years. And you'll remember this, this very vivid image of the cup of God's wrath being drunk by all of the nations. And so that is the message that came 
to the people of God via Jeremiah. But we didn't really see how people reacted. We didn't really see the response of the people and that's what we see in the next three chapters. How is this teaching received? How do the people of God respond to the word of judgment? So come with me to chapter 26. Have your Bibles open so you can have a look with me. This is during the reign of Jehoiakim. Now remember, in the book of Jeremiah, it's, it's not chronologically, set up chronologically. It's, not, it, it's actually set up the, thematically. And so the big context of this passage is not super important, but what it does is it just locates us in the history of God's people. What we have here in Jeremiah is not kind of just random dribble from a mad preacher, but this is all located in time and history. You can read about all of this happening in 2 Kings. But this verse says, chapter 26, verse 1. Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. This is what the Lord says, stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from their evil ways. Then I will relent and not inflict disaster on them, the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law, which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants and the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you have not listened, then I'll make this house like Shiloh and this city a curse among the nations of the earth. And so what we see here, uh, first and foremost, is the purpose of God's message of judgment. Chapter 25 is a warning to the people of God. And in chapter 26, there's still hope at this point. There, there is hope that the people will hear the warning and turn from their rebellion against God. This is the purpose of all warning signs, right? In the Northern Territory and far north Queensland, there are warning signs everywhere about the danger of crocodiles. Recently, this photo was taken at Cahill's Crossing, which actually takes you into Arnhem Land. This was on the ABC News. And when this photo was taken, there were literally tourists with their toes in the water. And there's warning signs. And yet people just fail to pay attention to them. There have actually been a number of people who have been taken by crocodiles here at that exact location over the years. And the warning is there so you can turn around, to go back from the water's edge. And the, and the same is true of God's word to Jerusalem. Have a look there in verse 3. He says, perhaps they will listen and each will turn from their evil ways. Then I'll relent and not inflict on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. See, this is God's heart, friends. He is a God who brings judgment because he cannot tolerate wickedness and evil. And he would not be a just and a righteous God unless he does bring judgment. But he's always looking for repentance. He's always looking for an opportunity to relent from sending judgment on his people. See this in 2 Peter chapter 3 as well. What does, what does Peter say about God's timing for Jesus' return and the destruction of the earth? Verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow 
in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here in Jeremiah, what we see is is not a God who delights in judgment, but a God who is just and yet is constantly looking to show mercy and relent from sending judgment. We see a God who is patient. He's patient because this is not the first word of judgment that God has spoken, remember? Verse 5, he says, And if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I have sent to you, again and again, though you have not listened. You see his patience here? Again and again, the warnings have come to the people of God and they have not listened. Every warning is an opportunity for them to turn back to God, to be obedient to God, to listen to God's word, to his, to, 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 and his heart and his inclination is to show mercy and kindness. So how do they respond? Verse 8. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded them, him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, you must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh and this city desolate and deserted? And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Now what is Shiloh before we get to this response? What is Jeremiah saying by suggesting that they will become like Shiloh? Well, Shiloh was a town that was a little bit north of Jerusalem. And it used to be the capital of Israel five to six hundred years beforehand. The main priests and the leaders were there, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant was there. But the Philistines came in and attacked. They killed the priests, they killed the people, they carried off the Ark of the Covenant. You can read all about it in 1 Samuel 4. And so Shiloh is like this symbol of destruction, national failure. It's this very dark time in the history of God's people. And so it was alarming for, for the people when Jeremiah preaches that this city would become like Shiloh. And instead of listening, they want him dead. And the rest of this chapter actually turns into a courtroom drama. Jeremiah is surrounded by the people and priests and officials and, and they're yelling things and making accusations. There are prophets there, but they're probably actually self-appointed prophets rather than God's real prophets. And they're all arguing about whether or not they were going to kill Jeremiah. The accusation is that Jeremiah's message is a hostile act against the well-being of the city. Verse 11, he says, This man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. Now, notice what's going on here. They're not saying <clears throat> that this is a boring religious sermon. They're saying this is actually harmful and aggressive and it's against the peace and the harmony of the nation. Perhaps they think it's a little bit too demoralizing, bad for the people of Jerusalem, will bring uh, morale down. But but the root of it is, is that the cultural and religious leaders of the day want the word of God suppressed and repressed. Now, how are they going to do that? Kill the prophet. Notice what happens here in Jeremiah is the, 
that people don't actually engage with the Word of God. They don't take the time to debate and discuss what Jeremiah is saying, but they move from hearing this difficult word to action. Kill the prophet. Now, this is often true. Many cultural, political, and even religious leaders today believe that the Bible's teaching is harmful towards the well-being of society and must be repressed. Keep it out of the public. Push it back behind church doors and into people's homes. Leave it out of the schools and the universities. You see, the gospel message and its implication is, is not always welcome in our world and it's not engaged with. It's, it's just shouted down by teachers and universities and lecturers and politicians and sporting clubs. It's repressed. Keep your gospel message and all of its implications, right? The hot topics, abortion, gender, sexuality. Keep it out of the public space. And what's frustrating is people's unwillingness to engage in that conversation. Now, it's sometimes easy to confuse what's going on there. It's easy for us to think that the big problem for the gospel today is that our society is drifting away from its Christian values. But that's not the problem. This is not a new problem that we are faced with here. The problem has always been the same, just expressed in different ways. People repressing the Word of God. Can I encourage you not to get stuck in this narrative that tells you that our nation is further from God than we used to be. Jeremiah is preaching in God's city. And have a look what's going on. There are priests, there are prophets, there are the people of God. They're all hearing this message and they're shouting, kill him, just as they did in Jesus' day. We're not getting further away from God, just the way that we repress the word of God is different to 10, 20, 30 2,600 years ago. And so we need to make sure we're not throwing our hands in the air and saying things like, it's too hard to reach Newcastle. It's too hard to reach Australia with the gospel. It's too hard to go to Myanmar with the gospel. It's always been hard, friends. People have always repressed the word of God. And so we keep praying for people. Keep looking for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Looking for moments in people's and praying for moments in people's lives where they might be more open to hearing the wonderful news of God's salvation. Now the really encouraging part of chapter 26 is, is Jeremiah's response and the response of the older generation. Have a look there in verse 12. Jeremiah speaks up here. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and all the people, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this, this city all the things you have heard. Now reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent and not bring the disaster he has pronounced against you. As for me, I am in your hands. Do whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on those who live in it. For, the tr for in truth, the Lord has sent me to speak all these words in your hearing. And that's courage under fire, isn't it? 
doesn't deny the charges. He doesn't back down from the message at all. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't even plead for mercy. He just kind of doubles down <laughs> at this point. And, and he kind of says, my message is from God, and if you kill me, that's just another nail in your coffin. But I think equally encouraging is actually the elders who step up. They step up and they remind everybody of the past. Verse 17. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? No. Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favour? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. That's courage, isn't it? It would be very easy for them to just kind of shrink back. Remember, they're trying to kill Jeremiah the prophet. It would be very easy for them to just kind of drift into the background and keep quiet. That's the human heart, isn't it? We feel the heat. People want to silence our message and we look around and think, it would just be easier if I didn't say anything. But the elders here, they stand up and they say, we should imitate Hezekiah. We should listen to the prophet. Don't kill him. And things will actually go better. I want to encourage you, friends, don't shrink back from heeding the word of God. It is very easy to go along with the crowd at school, at work, at university, to let the crowd shape and change our response to God's message. But to ignore God is actually to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves and our family. Be courageous. Stand up for Jesus and his word. Right? This is who we want to be. We want to be a people who are courageous and believe the word of the Lord, even as Christians get shouted down. Now that may be a simple decision to just keep trusting. It may mean speaking up for truth in a growth group or leading your family to engage in the word of God as, as questions about gender and sexuality become real topics of discussion with teenagers. It may simply mean holding fast the realities of heaven and hell as you bury loved ones. These elders are a great model for us to follow. They engage with the word of God and urge God's people to make wise and godly decisions in the light of his word. Now, episode two is similar but nuanced. Okay, so, so now we, we shift gears and we're in a different time period and this is Zedekiah's reign. Jeremiah, he has to give this, uh, this other kind of speech, uh, but this time he uses a visual aid, which is very helpful. This happens a lot in the Old Testament. What they tend to do is God says, you need to act out this judgment, the judgment of God. Now, poor old Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel, he had the lie on his side for 390 days to represent the number of days that Israel had sinned against God. Can you imagine the bed sores after 390 days? Jeremiah's visual aid was not as bad. It was a yoke. Now, not the egg variety of yoke, but um, 
one that you put over the shoulders of oxen to make them plough the ground, right? And this is what he says in verse 2. This chapter 27, verse 2 we are. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Then send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them a message for their masters and say, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel says, this, tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. So why is Jeremiah wearing this, this yoke? Well, it's a symbol of God's people submitting to the king of Babylon, which meant at the time, paying taxes and obeying the Babylonian laws and sending tribute to the Babylonian king and all uh, the whole bit, right? And Jeremiah is using his visual aid to make the point, submit, submit to this distant foreign king. Otherwise, things will go worse. This is a message for Israel, but it's also a message for all of the surrounding nations. And again, it's not a very popular message. But have a look what happens this time. This time there's not a death threat, but it, but it ends up being prophet versus prophet. Okay? So a prophet called Hananiah steps up against Jeremiah, and this is what he says in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel says, I will break the yoke of king, the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And they kind of go back and forth, Jeremiah versus Hananiah. And his point is, in verse 10, that God is going to come and break the yoke that Jeremiah is talking about. Jeremiah is talking about 70 years of judgment. Hananiah says, within two years, it's going to all be over. And he kind of makes the point in a visual way in verse 10. He says, then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. And he said before all the people, this is what the Lord says, in the same way I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. So, so Hananiah's message is very different to, to Jeremiah's. Rather than this kind of long exile with the threat of more punishment, Hananiah says, within two years, within two years, the rule of Nebuchadnezzar is all going to be over, it's all going to be done, uh, it will end. He's saying that the exiles, that the first, so there was two stages of the exile, there's the first deportation in 597, he's saying, well, after that, you know, the, 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 things will be better. Things will, re will, will the, the exiles will return uh, along with all the temple equipment that was taken into Babylon at that time. And things will be good again, friends. 
In some ways, what Hananiah says is very plausible. He's saying, I'm speaking according to the Lord, the God of Israel. He's saying God is in control over all the nations. He's saying God is merciful. He's saying we've had this period of discipline from God, but he longs to show mercy so that the time of hope and peace is coming. It's very plausible, isn't it? And, and it kind of touches on all these, these regular prophetic themes. But Hananiah is a false prophet and his message of peace and safety is shown to be false at the end of the chapter. Have a look in verse 15. Then the prophet said, Jeremiah said to Hananiah, the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth this very year you're going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. So kind of uh, definitive, wasn't it, that he was a false prophet. But his message is very appealing. If you were there, who would you want to believe? Jeremiah, who says 70 years of judgment under the king of Babylon, or Hananiah, who says two years of judgment and God is going to be merciful. Here we have the people of God ready to replace God's word with a more appealing message. So in chapter 26, they repress the word of God. They want the messenger dead. In chapter 28, though, they replace God's word for a more appealing alternative. And to do that, they lean into the character of God. They say, well, he's merciful, he's compassionate, and he controls the nations. All these things are very true, but they're twisted to appeal to the masses, to make the judgment of God more palatable. It is very easy for us to do that. In the New Testament, it says to Timothy 4, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So what's the itch that we want scratched in 2022? Well, there's heaps, isn't there? And look, you are all very discerning people. You're in a great church that values the preaching of the Word of God. But I think one of the more subtle temptations for us is to think that Jesus is for me and my comfort and my happiness. See, we often have this outcome in mind for our lives that we have borrowed from the world. And the outcome that we're looking for is happiness and comfort, just like the rest of the world. And so, and so when someone asks you, what do you want for your kids? We say things like, well, I just, I just want them to be happy. But because we're Christians, what we do is we end up sprinkling that path to happiness and comfort with Jesus and with a, a, a gospel nuance. And we use the Bible to say that Jesus is for me. And slowly over time, what happens is the gospel we, become, we believe becomes me-centered instead of God-centered. It ends up being God has a plan for my life. And, and whilst that might be true, what we mean by that is God wants to bless me and make me comfortable and make me happy. And you can see there that if this is the gospel we believe, 
there becomes very little room for repentance, very little room for the uncomfortable aspects of God's Word in our life. Because if God's Word doesn't make me happy, if it's not convenient, if it requires obedience, and obedience is not the path of least resistance, if it requires repentance and financial costs or personal costs, if it causes me grief or sadness, if it means speaking truth or standing up for truth in the face of opposition, then we will tend to shy away from it. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the first problem is that the pursuit of happiness is not really working for our world in the first place. Did you know that? People are not happier in our world because of this worldview. Glenn Harrison uh, says this in his book on self-esteem. We attempt to plug our aching insecurity with self-esteem, but in our hearts, we know that it simply will not do. There is something broken at the core of human experience, and we need something better, deeper, and more coherent to satisfy our spiritual yearning. It's not working. There's nothing deeply satisfying in a me-centered gospel message. It will not quench your spiritual yearning. Second, this false teaching actually leads people towards judgment. Have a look there in chapter 23. It says, Among the prophets of Samaria, I saw this repulsive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible, uh, seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that none of them will turn from their wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poisoned water because from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They will fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to you, uh, to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. Can you see the problem? False prophecy leads people astray. It strengthens the hands of evildoers. It leads to ungodliness. It reassures people who follow after the stubbornness of their own hearts. It fills us with false hope. And, and see, whilst these messages may sound appealing, what they're often doing is providing us with a soothing and pleasant and peaceful path to sin, judgment, and ultimately hell. And if it doesn't kill you, if it doesn't push you out of relationship with God, it will slowly kill the church. Very quickly, church will look like the world around us. See, when churches refuse to preach the truth of God and speak about hell and judgment and the urgency of the gospel and the value of God's word and the importance of gathering his people together, and when churches refuse to stand firm on all of the hot topic issues of gender and sexuality and, and just, or, or just kind of refuse to talk about these things, they might glisten today, they might look good today, but tomorrow their children won't have anything to stand on. Pray that we would not be a people who are easily persuaded to trust in lies. 
What does Jeremiah say to Hananiah? The Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Yes, God is for you. Yes, God loves you. Yes, Jesus died on your, your behalf. Yes, God has a plan for your life. But his plan for your life is bigger, better, more expansive than happiness and success in the here and now. Think about the life of Jesus. Big picture. Hebrews 12, this is what, he, what it says. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The path of least resistance for Jesus was to leave us under the judgment of God, to avoid the cross, from, to step away from doing the will of his Father, but he endures the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. He sees the bigger picture and he knows that God's call on his life that is more costly than you and I could possibly imagine, he, he knows that it's worth enduring because his future alongside his Father in heaven is pure joy. See, friends, we will be under all sorts of pressure to repress the Word of God. People will want to cancel Christianity. We'll be tempted to replace the Word of God for something more palatable. And so our Our vision ought to be that we would be a people who love God's word bigger and better than all of those pressures. And I'm not just kind of talking about reading, just reading the Bible. We don't want to people. We we actually want to be a people who who have deep confidence in and love for the Word of God. And you know, this week I've had to kind of repent of my lack of love for the Word of God. My lack of conviction that when I preach, no matter how boring I preach, when I preach, God's Word ought to change my life and your life. I ought to be looking for where I've been led astray and and need my thinking corrected. Where my passions are not God's passions and desires, where where I've begun to believe the lives of the world around me and, and be moved to repentance and change and grow in my love for our Saviour. Friends, I don't want us to just read the Bible. My prayer is that your life will be built and grounded on the very words of God. That you would love Him and love His words so passionately that it doesn't matter what pressure comes your way, you will stand on the truth of the Word of God. me pray Heavenly Father we thank you for the word of the Lord that came to us through Jeremiah today thank you that you wrote it down for us to hear and to see that the problem we have in our world is not a new one but an old one a problem where we attempted to repress the word of God to replace your word with something that we think is a little bit more palatable. 
Protect us from that, Father. Help us not just to read the Bible, but help our lives to be built and grounded on your words to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.